You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I haven't felt this excited or scared for a long time, maybe ever. I just signed a book deal resulting from the shortest pitch ever. I, John Waters, will hitchhike alone from the front of my Baltimore house to my co-op apartment in San Francisco and see what happens. Simple, huh? Am I nuts? Bridget Berlin, Andy Warhol's most dangerous and glamorous 60s superstar, recently said to me, how can I be bad at 70? She's got a point. I mean, yes, I'm in between pictures, as they say in Hollywood, but long ago I realized, as a so-called cult film director, not only did I need a plan B that was just as important to me as movie making, I needed a plan C, D, and E, too. But plan H for Hitchhike? I'm 66 years old, for God's sake. John Waters is a film director, screenwriter, author, actor, stand-up comedian, journalist, and a visual artist. His books include Role Models, Crackpot, The Obsessions of John Waters, Shock Value, a tasteful book about bad taste, Art, a sex book, and his new book is Carsick. Thank you for joining me, John. Well, glad to be here. I was so intrigued by the structure of this book because the premise that you read to us in the introduction of you hitchhiking across America and writing about that is great enough in and of itself. But you decided to do quite a bit more than that. And so tell us about making that decision and writing the three different sections of this book. Well, before I left, when I told people, including the people that work for me and my friends and my family, that I was going to hitchhike across America, they all reacted very negatively, saying, don't do it. Even my criminal friends in prison begged me not to do it. And, uh, and I thought, well, God, what could happen? What's the worst that could happen? I thought, well, maybe I should write that before I go. Write the very best that could happen. So I thought up 15 ideal rides and then the very worst that could happen, 15 terrible rides. Now, one of my assistants did say to me, I can't tell the difference. That <laughs> 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 sort of put me in my place. But uh, So I wrote them before I left for the trip, the fictitious parts. And... Uh, and, uh, and I'm glad I did because once I did the real trip, which is the third part of the book, which was 21 rides in nine days, I, I don't think I ever could have written the fiction parts because I know, knew what it was like to actually do it. And I forgot the tedium of it. That's the worst part that I didn't put in. In the best and the worst rides, I get a ride right away, <laughs> even if they're terrible. <laughs> in real life, you never get a ride right away. Matter of fact, I would get up every morning to hitchhike because I wanted the full daylight time, but I never got a ride till afternoon, it seemed like. And finally, one of my assistants said, why do you get up so early? You never get a ride in the morning. I think people that pick up hitchhikers don't get up early. You know, one of the things I thought when I was reading the fictional good and bad rides was that it's hard to tell the difference between <laughs> John Waters' real life and John Waters' imagined life. That, well, that there's, there's, the there's a little truth in all of them. I never really had sex in a demolition derby car in the middle of the race, but I did cover a demolition derby race for All Things Considered maybe 20 years ago, and I was in the car during the race. I didn't have sex, but uh, I never really had a... I did have a 
door-to-door knife salesman boyfriend, but he was an unsuccessful one. <laughs> In my book, he's successful. So there's, I guess, a tiny bit of truth. Um, to me, they're more like my old movies. Each one of these chapters could have been one of my movies, I think. One of them was a movie idea. The Hipster Carnival one was a movie idea that was aborted. So um, in a way... Uh, they are fiction. It was really fun to write fiction. Of course, it was a little easier because I'm in every chapter, the fictitious me. But um, all these things are about my interest and about, you know, I kind of, there's a librarian, a crazy one in it that collects uncollectible books and deliver them. Well, I own every one of those books that she's talking about in there. I, I'm a version it of it. I'm a version <laughs> of it. I'm not quite <laughs> as extreme. But then what I learned after writing the good parts and the bad parts is the real people that pick me up were not extreme, but they could not have been less predictable, less unjudgmental. You know, they were great people, but they didn't fit what you'd think, like how maybe how a Republican would think or this kind of person would think. Everybody was very different, but not extreme. So it was the first time ever I really bonded with middle America. Like, I had never been to Walmart in my entire life, and my sister said, you're such a snob. Well, I went into one that was in a military town. It was like porno Walmart. It was like all Marines, like <laughs> hundreds of Marines. <laughs> when I was reading the, the good fictional ones, I couldn't help but think of how wonderful your prose is. Oh, the prose is so dense in these, and the way you write it is so compacted. When you were writing these, did you have to rewrite them, or does that oh, spill out? Oh, I rewrote out? everything. Oh. Yeah, I mean, the book is 10th. You know, I write lots of drafts of it. But when I do my first draft, I mean, I make up notes for the whole thing. You know, we did a lot of research, too. Like in this book, in the fictitious part, when I get to a town, well, that's possible. I could be in that town. This town does have a a little jail. You know, so it was we did a lot of research on it. Mm, My assistants are great at that. And uh, yes, I rewrote it a lot of times. But the first draft, I just keep going and I just keep going. And I, at the end of the day, might read it, but the next morning, I just keep going. And then at the end, you think, who wrote this when you read the whole thing? I mean, you really change it a lot, but still, it's it's a lot easier to write when you have a long first draft of the first thing, even if you change really a lot of it. Well, I, I too, I really have the feeling that, love the feeling of you being a character, the way you create yourself as a character is so much fun. You have a lot of fun being yourself in a no- when you're not yourself. Well, I, you know, I have created a character for myself from the very beginning. When I was a kid, I used to come home from kindergarten, and my mother told me the story that I used to say, there's this weird kid in my class, and he only paints with black crayon, and he doesn't talk to the other kids, and he's weird, and I talked about him so much, my mother mentioned to the teacher, and she said, well, that's your son. So I was thinking up this character of myself, and I used to pretend I was nude descending a staircase, that painting as a child, but I didn't tell anybody. I would just come down the steps, and my father would say, what's the matter with you, boy? <laughs> Nothing. Peasant. Don't you know who do childish? You know, I would just read about things in Life magazine, and and, and be obsessed by them, but I just didn't tell anybody. So I was always creating a character for myself, and in my movie career in the beginning, we didn't have any way to advertise. We weren't famous. It was just like every kid making a film with his friends. So I sort of had to create this character for myself to help sell the movies. And um, it was easy to do. And um, now I have a stand-up show I do like 50 times a year. <laughs> Not 50, but 40. So um, it came in handy. I think you can never have too many careers. And uh, 
Matthew Marks, the art dealer, said to me, you have the best kind of fame there is because you, the only people that recognize you are the ones that you'd want to. <laughs> the <people laughs> Which is kind of like true, yeah. yeah. But I have great fans. It's not like I can't go out or anything. But at the same time, people say nice stuff to me. I mean, I, you know, it's not like I get mobbed in airports. But I do cell phone pictures really a lot. And why would I not do it? They bought the book. They've seen the movies. They're my customers. Why would I be mean to them? I never understand why people go out and resent taking a cell phone picture with someone who asks, well, why wouldn't you? They, they bought you what you have on. They bought you your house. When, when we read this book, part, in the, particularly the, the first two parts, uh, in, we are really reminded of your art and the way you created. And I think there's what's interests me is that you really love everything that you come in contact with. And, and especially your, the more repellent it is to <laughs> most of us, the more you seem to embrace it, even when the you who is in the story is going, oh, my God. Well, I'm getting murdered in one <laughs> chapter. But I, uh, I guess I always make fun of things I love. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm only right about human behavior I can't understand, and that keeps me interested in everything. Um, that's why I don't like reality television, because I think it basically asks you to feel superior to the subject matter. And I don't think I ever do that. Even if you hate my work, I think that you see that I kind of look up to taste, even if it's terrible or extremes. And in my other book, Role Models, I wrote about people that have had extreme life, sometimes really good, like Johnny Mathis, who had instant success from the first time he sang, never any racial discrimination, nothing. To Leslie Van Houten, who had a ter- did a terrible crime when she was young and, and has to live with it and try to make herself, as she said, the best, better person than she would have been if this had never happened to her. That's the only choice you have, really, when you can't change something. So all those extremes fascinated me. All those people have had more extreme life than I have. And I'm not really jealous of them, but I'm fascinated by them, by the, how they've dealt with both good and bad things. I just heard John Waters say, all those people have had more extreme lives than I have had. Yeah, <laughs> they have. a pretty amazing statement. They have had much more extreme, yeah. Yeah, they have had more extreme lives, and that's why they interest me. And, um, and behavior I can't understand. Really, the only person I want to be these days is Judy Clark, who was the, the lawyer for the Boston bomber, Susan Smith, uh, the Colorado congressman, um, Unabomber, and, and she is the Clarence Darrow of today, but if she wins, and this is the first case she ever lost, the bomber one, was she gets your life without parole and not death. What an address book she must have. <laughs> Does she get Christmas cards from all of them? You traffic in the things that that frighten most people even to think about. They frighten me too. That's why I'm interested. That's what I'm saying. Human behavior. I wouldn't have been a bad shrink or a defense lawyer Mm -hmm. is because... Rumpel. I I just am fascinated by the behavior. I I don't think I could have done any of the things that they did, certainly. Um, I'm not a violent person. and I don't especially like violence. I'd never look like on the news if they have like all these terrible shots of killing hostages. I look away. I don't ever look at real violence. But I like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I used to not like that movie until, and I never wouldn't see it because I just thought it was senseless violence. Then I, when I finally saw it, I said, this is kind of like somebody filmed a Flannery O'Connor story. <laughs> oh, it's a great, I think it's a great, great movie. The first one is really good. 
Now, even some of the sequels aren't bad. Yeah, I I think there's a couple written by David Scout that yeah. probably have some. There's some good ones. Like you, you messed up my Sonny Bono wig. That's like <laughs> one line in one of them that I somehow <laughs> remember. <laughs> you talk about uh, literary hitchhiking hoaxes in the book, in particular, uh, John Steinbeck shattered my heart. I did That's not know true. That. I did not and know that. I didn't know it either till the New York Times did an expose on that like in the last 10 years that he made up half that stuff. He didn't go and it was a complete lie that book <laughs> which is shocking that book's still in print and everything. Well yeah no and it's a book that I have read in grade school yeah. and you know that's you take it to heart. It's it's I've come to see America and that's <laughs> one of the things I, I think that a hundred years from now when if they create a time capsule, they can take out this book <laughs> and whatever the latest Stephen King novel is and get the best picture of America as it really is. <laughs> well, I think there might be some people that would argue that on the, on the point of that. Um, but at the same time, I, I think I do keep up with what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that some people in my generation, I'm 69 now, I was 66 when I actually did the hitchhiking trip. Um, stop going out and they stop knowing what's going on you have to have youth spies they're really important you have to bribe them you have to give them money but they tell you about new stuff because i don't feel like going to a rap club at three in the morning but i'd like to hear the music mm -hmm. but i'm never going to hear that i mean i do read music reviews but you need young people to filter it to you the same way if you know when i do the book tours whenever people want to take pictures I would say get the youngest person that works here to work the cameras because no one over 30 knows how to work every cell phone camera oh it's and the most radical kid would say to you I don't have a cell phone just a hard line that would be the most <laughs> radical teenager <laughs> you know um one of the things that I really love about your work is the way how important story is to you yeah, story is important. Yeah, the, this is the the key to this book, and it's just packed full of story. And there's story arcs, and st I mean, this is a very intricately conceived piece of writing. Narrative is important, and it's the hardest thing. It's so simple to think up characters. I can think up a hundred of them, but the story is torture to think up. And um, I'm writing a script right now, so the story is the hardest part. But that's what makes it a hit. Uh, you know, they always say in Hollywood, they say with a movie, the first 10 pages is what gets your movie made because they don't read any further. But in a theater, the last 10 pages is what makes it a hit because that's when they walk out of the theater and say, did you like it or not, what they remember. That's why whenever you see tail credits these days, the music is always upbeat because that's now it's so fast. They're tweeting still in the theater. Hated it. So they want to <laughs> influence you. Like, did you like it? Before you can even think if you liked it or not, they've got that music blaring as you're walking out trying to influence what you're going to tweet. Boy, you know, I really always hate this. It's always some, like some sounds like some kind of uh, German march or something <laughs> yeah. with done with heavy metal guitars in well, the background. Well, market research. What do you think test screenings are? You know, they try to make it so that every audience will like it, which unfortunately means that no audience will like it because they take out all the extremes. Well, th thank you, Mr. Waters, for putting the extreme in. I remember a bazillion years ago taking myself to the New Art Theater right. to, to see a Smell-O-Vision. Yeah, Odorama. Odorama. Smell-O-Vision actually was the first one that was done with a big machine that they, a movie called The Scent of Mystery, where they pack, they had all good smells, which mm -hmm. was a mistake, 
And then they had this big machine that pumped out smells, but they had six shows a day. So by the end of the day, you needed a gas mask to go in the theater. That's why it didn't work. I've always been a fan of the sense of smell. I think it's highly yeah. underrated. I have a terrible sense of smell because I used to smoke five packs of cigarettes a day, and I once I quit, the smell never came back. So um, I, you know, the house could be on fire. People say, my assistant said, "Can't you smell gas in this house?" No, I it could be there. The whole house would explode. I wouldn't smell anything. You know, you one of the things that you do in this book is you do put yourself in danger. Oh I mean, yeah, uh, yeah constantly well hitchhiking is danger a little and and picking up a hitchhiker is dangerous so it is a premise with a little danger involved that's why movies always even my own portray hitchhiking in a terrible way always something terrible happens when you hitchhike in most movies there's not a lot of joy of hitchhikers (laughs) in movies serial killers pick you up but not that many serial killers kill 66-year-old film directors. That's why in my death in the book, I wrote that I was killed by a serial killer that only killed cult film directors. Well, um, and so I... So far, there hasn't been one. <laughs> so far, there hasn't been one. But I really like that uh, that scene because for me, it brought home the the feel of this fear we have of serial killers. I mean, it's so... Inter- I find it so interesting. I mean, that... We're so consumed with serial killers, but not with traffic accidents. I mean, I think I'm more afraid of a traffic. You have much more chance of yeah. being killed in a car accident. And I am a backseat driver, but when I hitchhiked, I never had a bad. Not one person picked me up was an unsafe driver, and I thought for sure I was going to be in the backseat. Turn left. You're going too fast. But you really can't do that when you're hitchhiking. Talk about bad manners. But I think you're just so glad you got a ride that you, you change how you would be in real life. You say, oh, what the hell? I didn't have a seatbelt on this one whole ride because there wasn't one, but I didn't get out. I mean, you just kind of – but I didn't have anybody in my life that really drove – on this hitchhiking trip that drove scarily. In my real life hitchhiking, I have. Well, mm-hmm. I had one that just fired a gun out the window but not at me. I thought, oh, well, it was very, you know, it was very Joan Didion. <laughs> Now, in your fictional uh, creations, there were there was plenty of terrifying driving, and I wonder how much yeah. of that was based on your own experiences. None of it was based on my own experience, really. I don't think I ever had a ride that was that extreme, certainly, no. I mean, no. And um, when I was had young, you got sexual. Everybody got asked for sex or if you were hitchhiked when you were young. And somebody just said no or yes, depending on the mood. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one asked me to have sex on this trip. Uh, well, I mean, one one said I could spend the night in the truck. I I don't know what that meant. I didn't have to because I was gonna almost had to sleep in the woods that night. So I would have, and I guess for the book I might have. <laughs> it would have been a good chapter. Would have been a good yeah. chapter, but I th- I think every chapter is good in this book. And well, I, thank, you, th- thank That's you. one of the things that when you were putting this together. You have this variety of experiences that you've chronicled on the road, but you're putting it together in the luxury of your, you know, domain in Baltimore. Right. There, uh, talk about re, you know, re-experiencing your own stuff, re-experiencing your imaginations of your own stuff. Did you find that there was starting to get some kind of crosstalk there? No, because I wrote the first draft of the fictional book before I left and did the trip. Mm -hmm. Uh, During the trip, I did not take a tape recorder out in the car. I didn't look at my cell phone. I think there's manners. But right when I jumped out of the car, I had my tape, and I would say everything I remembered. And uh, 
every person that I've talked to that since read the book said that is what happened. Nobody was questioning what I wrote. Uh, but when I was writing the fictional parts, no, I write every morning. I have a certain routine to it. So when it's really going well, you dream about it, come like you're writing, and then you wake up in the middle of the night sometimes and write something down, and then you look at it in the morning, it makes no sense, really. What, <laughs> it isn't a good idea. But you think, wow, that was brilliant, but it wasn't. Uh, so, no, it never got mixed up. It was, um, I always think, you know, my I write by longhand, and so um, when I give the first draft, which is probably my fifth draft, to my assistant to type it, who can read my Cy Twombly-esque handwriting, uh, I'm always thinking, what do they think? I mean, these are both middle-aged heterosexual women that I think, you know, are just like... I can't imagine what they say behind my back, but certainly they're characters in the book because um, I was whining to them on the phone a lot. When I'd be stuck somewhere for 10 hours, I'd say, I have to drink my own urine now and stuff like that <laughs> just to make them suffer with me. Well, you'd already done a bit of that fictionally, so you were well prepared well, in your was imagination. Well, I had the, Jesus, the crazy person, the, the vegan pick me up that, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, I love the music cues in this book. Thank you. There I, are so much fun in it. You that can look them all up, yeah. The, on, the problem is I wanted to have uh, playlists on the book because I didn't think any books really did that I could think of. And I did a lot of research, and almost every song about hitchhiking, the most famous one is a rhythm and blues song by Marvin Gaye, but all the rest are country songs. There's very few songs about hitchhiking that aren't country, but there's some great ones. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, but oddly enough, I put a song in every fictitious captor would be playing on the radio. In real life, not one person had the radio on ever when they pick you up hitchhiking because they want to talk. Mm. When you get in the car, they turn the radio off, basically. Oh, they do want to talk, of course. Everybody wants to talk or wants you to talk, one of the two. And how much either one of you wants to talk is something that you negotiate right away, kind of. I really didn't want to talk about my life because I have to do that for my job all the time. <laughs> I wanted to hear what they had to say. And mostly th they did w tell me about their lives. Um, they weren't impressed by celebrity. Even when they knew who I was, they didn't ask me a lot of questions about what's this person like, or they didn't. I would ask them stuff because I was truly interested. They were talking, telling me stories about feeding pigs M&Ms and you know, stuff that I didn't really know anything about. It was new information for me. And then they would try to give me money when they didn't believe me, thought I was just a crazy man, I thought I was a film director, which was really touching. I was so shocked the first time that happened when the farmer like let me up and took his mm -hmm. wallet out and tried to give me $10. I thought, well, I cost more than that if I'm hustle, even at this age. But <laughs> I didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> And I thought, what do I have to do, a lap dance now? <laughs> but then I realized he just didn't believe that I was a film director and thought I was an old homeless guy, which was so touching to me, you know? Very nice. Uh, and I think that that spirit just comes across again and again in this book from you, from the people you... you well, it was true. I up. did feel great, great thanks to every person that picked me up because they would even audition dress stops when they let me off you know we'd pull off the highway and say no that's a bad entrance ramp that isn't going to work or at night I had to be let off where there was a motel somewhere and that was hard because you didn't know when okay I better quit here I'll get at this town because I, I never actually did hitchhike when it was pitch dark mm -hmm. which I did try to avoid 
Why did you try to avoid that? I don't know. It just seemed creepier in a way, just to be standing there in the pitch dark in the middle of Kansas. And was, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I didn't. The same way I didn't smoke pot when they offered me, because I thought, I can't be dropped off stoned, <laughs> standing here by myself in my age, hitchhiking stoned. was just something <laughs> too extreme for me. Well, I think you write well, too, uh, about the, the tedium. It is and, tedium, and, yeah, and I think that, but I think that's important. I, it, it's it's tough act to pull, pull off to say to write about something boring without being boring. Well, you stand there for so many hours, and you know, so many cars go by in that hours, and it's true. Uh, you keep yourself amused. I, I would make up hideous insults to each person on a split decision when they went by based on race, sex, <laughs> anything, just to keep myself, you know, busy from going crazy. I played a game in rest areas by predicting number one or number two going to the bathroom by people's expression when they got out of the car. And I could always tell by how long they were in there the correct answer. You amuse yourself. You <laughs> You come up with things that you would never do to pass the time. Uh, I littered once because I was so mad I couldn't get a ride, and I would never litter. Um, so it was weird. It was weird to go down in the breakfast rooms every morning in those hotels. And I thought there that I would have my little sign. People would recognize me. I'd get a ride easily. Not once did anyone. They turned away eye contact from me. Never did I meet a friend or chat anybody up in the breakfast rooms in these very grim motels. Uh, people just stared blankly at the TV without any thought seeming to appear on their face. Now, other people were nice. All the people that picked me up were, and some of the people in the motels were nice. Um, some weren't. Uh, some were very anxious when they saw I had a hitchhiking sign. One woman especially said that if I showed it again, she would call the police. Really? Yeah. But the cop, a cop gave me a ride. Right, yeah. So he I was nice. The police were always nice to me. They didn't. That's interesting, too. Because when I saw him coming, I had a sign that said, writing hitchhike book, and that seemed to work with cops, but it did not work with getting a ride because people think, oh, what kind of book? I don't want, you know, before they pick you up, they don't want their privacy. They don't like that. But it worked with cops because mm. they thought, oh, we're not dealing with him. And uh, once they stopped <laughs> to check my warrant, and I had a fame kit with me, we called it as my assistant made, that I would flash my director's Guild of America card <laughs> like, like that was going to get me out of jail. <laughs> you know, so ridiculously privileged. But In America, it, worked. it would, yeah. It, well, no, most people don't even know what a director's Guild of America card is, really, you know. And so, but the one cop looked through it all, and then he said, well, it doesn't say you're a professional hitchhiker. So I knew then he was on my side. And I said, well, you could give me a ride. And he did, but he could only take me so far in his jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And said, I'll come back and check on you. And I got stuck there. I was there for hours. And he came back, and I thought it was another cop giving me a ride. I realized it was the same one. I was disappointed. And he criticized me. He said, well, shake the sign some or something. you got to be more aggressive. And I thought, I'm getting dissed of my hitchhiking techniques by a cop. <laughs> and... Uh, when you meet these people, you're you're kind of stuck in this really small space with them, and it's an, essentially an airless space that you guys got built with words. So, and you then you jump out of the car and you record what you can. Talk about your experience. You know, how did you remember them and then recreate them? On paper. I because I, right when I got out of the car, I had my little tape recorder in the pocket, and I would say every single thing I remembered. And in the motel at night, I would think of things and compare it to other rides. I always had my little tape recorder. And so when I came back, 
I had all the notes. I had all the emails and texts to my office back and forth when I would tell them this, and we printed all them out. So I had a record of it, and we had a map where I was every day. And uh, BlackBerry was great. It it can track you, you know. So my assistant had made me carry this thing called a spot thing. It didn't work, I don't think. (laughs) They said it's for if you're in an avalanche or something. Well, then she said, you have to have it in plain sight. I said, well, then why an avalanche, you know? (laughs) But I didn't think it worked so great. But I did have that in case, I guess, I was dead somewhere. But, um, But they could track me not... They couldn't say where I was. I could mm-hmm. say sort of where I was. They could knew if I got a ride or not. They could see me sitting there for a long time, and they were praying I didn't call. And then it would start moving, and they'd text me, yay, they could see I got picked up. <laughs> but when I would be there for eight hours and stuff, they tried not to look. <laughs> I, as but a, it didn't, they couldn't say exactly where I was. I mean, it didn't say exact location, it vaguely. But I didn't know. I'm staying on the exit ramp. They don't have... Exit 36 is a quarter of a mile ahead of that. It doesn't say there's th- they don't have a little plaque for hitchhikers when you're standing on the <laughs> ramp saying, you are here now, just in case you don't know. So I never really knew where I was. It, as a guy who's like used to, I mean, you know, you have, uh, you strike me as a fellow who's a habit-driven guy. I yeah. Mean, I, and so what, made you decide to like let loose of your habits even for nine days that well i didn't know it was going to be nine days i i I gave myself two weeks at the worst Mm -hmm. it took 11 days but there were days in the beginning when i thought this is going to take six months when i would go so slow all day just going like 200 miles or something and uh i did it because my life is so scheduled and is so controlled and everything that i thought can i give that up can i just because you can't be a control freak and be a hitchhiker there's no way you can do that i guess not no so i just tried to give it up to see what would happen what would happen and uh i did fly home i had a limo pick me up i flew first class to new york and i presented the fashion oscars to johnny depp and ray kawakuba so i went home the exact opposite way that i came but in the beginning i felt guilty though like getting in a cab or doing something after the hitchhiking trip Mm -hmm. i and even once I went to the movies on the way, and I thought, well, you can take a cab there. This isn't part of your trip. But I felt cheating when I got, took a cab to the uh, movies. And I, I did hitchhike home, kind of. Someone recognized me in the movie, and they gave me a ride back to the hotel. But they took me to the wrong hotel. It was a different branch. And then I had to get the guy <laughs> feel sorry for him, and he took me from the hotel back to my right one. You know, the the characters you create in this book are so memorable. Have you been in contact with these people since? The real ones, yes. I, I Certainly the the Republican elected official, the Corvette kid. I'm going to be in his him. wedding. I'm going to be in his wedding. He's getting really? married next year. Yeah. Uh, I'll only meet his parents, which they hate me. Um, <laughs> who, let me think. Who else did I? I'm in touch with the Here We Go Magic, the band that picked me up. Mm-hmm. I... Uh, the Kansas couple to pick me up came with their gay son and his boyfriend to my signing in Baltimore. They flew in for that. Uh, the Marine woman that picked me up in the anthrax case, she uh, had a baby, and the middle name of the child is after me. <laughs> <laughs> so some of them, yes. Some of them, I don't know their names or where they are. I mean, the only ones that I'm in touch with were people that we did sort of bond or we exchange numbers and everything. But some were short rides. You know, I don't like the coal miner and the, the frackers I do know, but they were the only ones I, I purposely changed their names a little bit because they were smoking pot and a little illegal. So I didn't want to you know, reveal them. But I haven't heard from them. And they could have called me. Mm-hmm. I think they had my card. Mm. 
the the places that you go in this trip are are really interesting because they are not place people go. Uh, that's one of the most I think interesting aspects. Well, people of all go, of this. but. Not to go people there. you know. I it, mean, like you mean in the in the real part. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, you're just traveling across Route 70. It was not a tourist uh, trip. You know, we didn't stop. I didn't say, oh, well, let's stop and look at this. I just wanted to get there. So uh-huh. my thing was, how far does this ride take me? Not let's stop here and look at the art. And, well, that's you know, a, that's what's so interesting yeah. about this because it's going from one place to another. Where we're used to seeing, you know, sites, locations, yeah. places where the places will be the star and you know have this experience. Yeah. Your experiences are all Applebee's on a bad day. Yeah. That was the worst. <laughs> Applebee's on a good day is not, well, no, but I, of all the fast food ones, you know, the Applebee's was the worst. At least the one I went in. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all different. You know, that was a Sunday morning. I guess these. Christians were especially dirty in the bathroom because they were not very clean after church. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, two, I think one of the things that when I was reading this, I, I, for example, five rides in the first day. When I'm when I'm reading the book, I'm just wow. He had to deal with five rides in the first day. That's just my mind. And of course, it's pouring rain. Couldn't you have chosen a different day? Well, no, because I did great research. My assistant did to find out when was the most moderate temperature on Route 70, and it was the last week in May. The problem is it rains every day. We didn't look at that. We just looked at the temperature across the country, and the temperature was fine the whole way. It was 60, 70. But it rained, and the first two days, it was, I mean, pouring rain, like, like you pray for in California right now. Uh, you know, standing there with a poncho and the bags wet and, you know, people splash when you went by. And I was just thinking, am I insane that I'm doing this? It's the only thing I didn't think of, uh, mm-hmm. that it was going to rain a lot. And it only did rain those first two days. So that was the only day I was actually caught in it. But it was two blocks from my house it was pouring rain. <laughs> I'm standing there and nobody picked me up because I left too early and everybody's coming into the city, not going out at uh-huh. six in the morning. The few cars, there were no cars. I just stood there for a half hour in the morning with no cars in the pouring rain, like a fool, with my sign praying the neighbors didn't drive by. When you were uh, in the in the aftermath uh, of this, uh, writing this, putting this together, did you like it, this, lay that all out, that map out, and mm-hmm. uh, and. Did you go through the pieces chronologically when you Yes, you I wrote, wrote it chronologically. Yeah, mm-hmm. I wrote it chronologically. But I had all the notes with each one. And then, yes, and we would put days, print out the emails, print out everything. So I had the the days and where we were on the map. So I knew that, yes. And even I did that in the fictitious part. So mm-hmm. I didn't write that I something that was impossible to do to get there in that one day or to get there. And, you know, there is this demolition derby place in the one place I wrote. There is a little prison in the place I wrote. It is illegal sodomy in Kansas still. You know, so mm-hmm. all the stuff that was in the fictitious part. I mean, I did the research on where juji fruits are made. <laughs> I did. <laughs> yeah. I love the juji fruits. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, I did the research, and, well, my office did it with me. But So the fictional parts are pl- possible that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, physically well, I could have done it, you know. And... Um, 
But when real life, no, no, when I got a ride in a truck, you know, it wasn't like any of the truckers that picked me up there. But he was a lovely guy, a really nice guy. And trucks are so modern. You don't realize when you're up in them, they have computers. They wear like those Madonna earphones. <laughs> yeah. They're very fancy. The, the trucks are very dis- unlike the porn fantasy trucks that you might have seen in a movie. The uh, One of the things, too, that the characters that you create in the, the first uh, two parts of the book, um, they, they really seem to ring true. I think the whole book really has this kind of ring of truth to it. Well, I, I want to be like I was telling you a story. Those people are completely characters I made up, but I could imagine meeting every one of those people, certainly. I could imagine them being real. They're probably not that extreme. Like the truck stop that I went to in the book. I do know a truck driver that's crazy and tells me shocking stories about what it's like to be a truck driver, the illegal stuff he does and all. So I listened to him. Mm -hmm. I exaggerated and made up a fantasy based on one truck stop that I thought up that he told me about different ones he had So there are really truck stops like that? Yes, there are illegal truck stops, yes, with hookers and total, yes, there is, yes. Oh, wow. Yeah, (laughs) and drugs and everything. Yeah, they're in the south and they're off the main route. They're certainly not on the uh, interstate. Mm-hmm. I think there used to be when I, I used, my mother used to live in Victorville. Where's that? Uh, Southern California desert, kind uh-huh. of out off 15. Uh-huh. And there was a, there was a road, a highway, 395, that kind of... Is big. that near Needles? Um, God, I, I always love the name of <laughs> Needles, California. It's usually the hottest temperature in the country every day. So, yeah. and I went through there once. Mm. Uh, there was a there was a place there that I think looked might have been a good candidate for that. <laughs> right. It was just off the the freeway, yeah. and there was like a little place, a massage parlor back there. Oh, that's yeah. a bad sign. Yeah. yeah. Well, I saw one place even today when we were coming through after we left Reno, right when you go across the border, you know, in Nevada, or when you're coming into Nevada, it said like truckers free at all times. What What do you mean they get to just live there for free if they gamble? <laughs> but that's a lovely place. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, I think your interest in the more uh, repellent parts of humanity is is itself so interesting because I think that we are more than half that, and that's the half we never hear about. <laughs> And I really think that you do a great job of turning that into some really beautiful writing and some Thank great. Thank you. I wanted because those kind of people. I do go to those kind of bars. I do go. I mean, in role models, I wrote about some clubs that I go to in Baltimore, and I do know people like all the characters in here. I taught in prison for a while. I do. I certainly have a varied address book. Believe me. So um, at the same time, I I find them just as interesting to me. Like I never understand um, people that only have famous friends. What would I write about? You know, what would I make them? I'd like to hear other people's stories. I don't like to hang around with people that are exactly like me all the time. I find that really boring. I want to hear other people's worst nights. I want to hear what it's like to be a funeral director or (laughs) a... or a truck driver or a librarian or all that. So I'm, I'm interested, and I think anybody that writes is. And they listen. They spy on people, and they make up stories about people. They look at someone. The best writing exercise is to sit in an airport or when a plane lets out, make up an instant profile of every person as they walk out the door. And it's fun to do. 
Well, I, I'm guessing you're also a prodigious eavesdropper because your oh, conversations yeah. are, are great. I mean, they really, I love reading your, your dialogue. Thank you. Yeah, well, I've written a lot of movies, so mm -hmm. that's where dialogue comes in handy because that's all they are mostly. But um, I do eavesdrop all the time. I love to listen to people, what they say, and especially when they're serious, you know, without ever thinking they're funny. I you I think you do a great job with uh, the Vietnam vet you met. I think that you did a good. Which is a Vietnam vet? I'm trying to think. The one. Um, he comes just before the trucker. The isn't this in the real one? The real one. Oh yes. yeah yeah yeah. Oh he was great. Yeah he was. This is the one that had all the tattoos. Yeah 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 yeah. He baby was great. pigs. Yeah 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 yeah. So all the people they told me their stories, and I think people that pick up hitchhikers have conquered something. They have gotten over something in their life. They've come back from something, and they're proud of it, and they're feeling hopeful and good about themselves, and maybe one time in their life when they did not. So they want to help people. And that's why you pick up a hitchhiker. You don't pick up a hitchhiker selfishly unless you're looking for sex. Mm. Uh, you know, that's interesting. I never thought about that actual approach of why you know, the motivations behind the people who are picking you up time and time again. Because and somebody picked them up, and, and I don't mean in a car. I mean mm -hmm. somebody helped them get through something. So most people that are hitchhiking are down on their luck. Certainly somebody my age is never hitchhiking for fun like I was, basically. So um, I know a father stopped once with his two young sons, and I didn't get in because he was only going a couple exits, which I thought might be a worse place to get dropped off. But you could tell he had done it before. He was just teaching his kids to help people. Now, a lot of people think, I would never pick up a hitchhiker with my children in the car. Why not? Mm. Well, I think, too, that you yourself present them standing by the road with a character. And, and yeah, but they didn't know who I was. I looked like a homeless person so with a baseball cap and a like, weathered face from the wind. And, you know, I did my hat stupidly said scum of the earth on it, which I shouldn't have worn that hat. That's the name of a movie. But you couldn't really see that going fast. When I got in the car, they read it. That was even worse. They couldn't see it when I'm standing on the side of the road. They couldn't read the letters. But when I'd get in the car, I always take it off. Which is a bad idea because then you have hat hair, which is a hideous <laughs> look after you've been standing there for eight hours. <laughs> now, but when you get in the car, you have to do kind of an instant read of the person you're, yeah. you're getting into to, to talk to. And then all of a sudden you have to do an instant, I guess, uh, makeover of yourself to figure out, okay, well, all right. This this guy's a trucker. I mean, this is who I've got to be to in order to get that ride and, you know, have a good time, get something out of I him. I offered usually. I always would say that I was a film director or I was writing a book, but sometimes they either didn't believe me or weren't interested, really, mm -hmm. or asked me stuff. And if they asked me stuff, I would tell them. And many times, one guy said, oh, I heard a hairspray. I think my, my, I think my daughter was in it in school, but they didn't follow up on it. They weren't overly <laughs> impressed by it. Um, they just... And then I'd get them talking. And people do tell me stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm, I Even on airplanes, strangers say things to me, reveal things, which I don't even want them to. So um, <laughs> I, I think that people have always blurted out secrets to me for some reason. But my favorite thing on a plane recently, a woman was staring at me, and I thought, what's she going to say? And finally she said something that no one's ever said. She said, are you a magician? <laughs> I just love that. Because of my mustache, I guess she's pictured me in like a top hat and a... Dove. <laughs> <laughs>
That's great, and that's a good, you know, that would be, that's a good call on her part. I'd say you do look like a cl the classic version of a I magician. I know, but no one's ever asked me that. They, you know, they ask me different things, and they've never asked that. Well, have you considered doing a movie about a magician? You should. No, no, but I was a puppeteer when I was young. The same circuit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Birthday parties. Scary. It's scary. Yeah. Puppeteers are scarier than, than... Well, puppeteers, you know, all actors eventually say to you, we're not your puppets, you know. And, and <laughs> but they are. Uh, do you know how many film directors were puppeteers? About 50%. Really? Yeah. I guess that shouldn't, no surprise, huh? Yeah. I mean, obviously, that they're, they're, they're already puppeteers from their film directors. <laughs> I know. It's just that they're. Well, actors hate that, <laughs> but I'm afraid too bad. <laughs> are you a puppeteer? I was Is a that... puppeteer when I was young. No, now, no. Uh, Although I'm growing to hate improvisation in movies. Mm -hmm. You can always tell. Mm -hmm. And it isn't better. I'm in the writer's <laughs> guild. Say the lines. <laughs> the only ones do it to show their power. The highest paid, biggest ones. No director has the nerve to tell them not to improvise. And you can tell in movies. I can tell. Uh, that's like uh, there are the books that are eight. 100 plus pages that you know the editor said okay <laughs> well some i mean i'm a big sucker i love my struggle out of these mm -hmm. lazy translators get busy on five i've already read all four <laughs> <laughs> so i don't mind length if it's good no well neither yeah. do i i mean i'm in currently reading an 865 page book and i absolutely don't want it to yeah end, that's what i mean that's, good. that's even better when you get yeah. one like that but i know what you mean what mm -hmm. i hate in a book is when you read it and it obviously hasn't been edited because they say the same sentence or the same thing three chapters later i said well you already said that and yeah. it's like amazing to me that that meant really the editor was lazy because it's obvious you said the exact same thing two chapters before mm -hmm. when you're I, you know i think you're such a good writer and i'm wondering oh. why you don't spend more time at it. Well, it I've seems written, like it's easier. All my books are still in print, including Shock Value, the first oh, one. And I yeah. wrote all 13, 14 of my movies. And well, so, that's, there's a, there is that. <laughs> yeah. I write my spoken word show. I do. And I have two versions, This Filthy World and then The John Waters Christmas, which I'm constantly updating. That's all I've ever been as a writer. Mm. Do you? But... I think that I, I like the books. Thank I mean, you. I do, too. And, and the books have had success. Not all the movies have. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm writing a TV script right now. And if that doesn't go, I'll go into the next book, which I'm not sure what it is yet, but I have a couple ideas. You're, you the books take a long time to write, mm. <laughs> at least for me. Well, you're, are you also working on a movie? Uh, I'm writing on a, working on a script that I can't talk about because it's a development deal with the studio and you're not allowed to tell. But it's due July 1st. So oh, will we'll we see. hear about it then? Oh. One way or another? Yeah. Uh, you, if it's no, you won't hear about it. If it's yes, you will. That's kind of how it works. Oh, good. Well, I, I mean, if it's a no, I talk about it a year later when it doesn't matter. Mm. <laughs> when they can't use it <laughs> against you. <laughs> that one of your development deals didn't work. Well, you know, I think... You've done a one of the things I really like about your work is that it's clear you're having a blast with everything you do. Well, I, I like my job, yeah. I, but you managed to do this making art and making money, and that's a really trip, <laughs> tough trifecta. Yeah, I've had a good career. People have understood me. I, I never made, I always say to Johnny Knoxville, how come, you know, 
you do the same thing I did with Pink Flamingos in a way. He does. The closest <laughs> to each other, the Jackass movies. But I made hundreds and you made millions. <laughs> How did you get <laughs> Middle America to go for it? You know, and I see those movies and I'm mystified how he did. But he did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that uh, he only did that because you laid the way path. I mean, well, Johnny's those Jackass movies were pretty great because who would have ever thought that you could have like a movie with heterosexual nude guys made for blue collar fathers and sons to bond together watching that's an odd <laughs> an odd pitch <laughs> to say the least but less odd <laughs> after pink flamingos yeah but pink flamingos was preaching to the converted pink flamingos was a midnight movie it never crossed over to being a mainstream thing uh Hairspray is the only devious thing I ever did because mm -hmm. it's playing in every high school now and people don't realize it has the same values as Pink Flamingos. <laughs> <laughs> how, how does that make you feel? I mean, good. <laughs> you know, I'm an insider. That's the only radical thing I can be now. And this is something uh, I think one of your, I think in the, in the fictional thing, somebody says that you, you can no longer be an outlaw. And, and, and I think that you've done a good well, job of outlaw, being... Well, an outlaw, you can... An outlaw, what does that mean? I mean, there's almost nothing you can be to be an outlaw anymore. I mean, I, I sympathize with today's juvenile delinquent who is a kid that is 30 years old, live with his parents. They haven't seen him in <laughs> eight months. They leave food outside his door, and he's shutting down the government of North Korea on his, on his computer. That is today's juvenile delinquent. Like, I sort of felt bad for the guy that got convicted of Silk Road you know, where else am I going to buy Hitman and, <laughs> and, and heroin by the pound? Uh, it just amazed me. You know, I always thought when I read about that case, oh, the government's making all, this isn't all true about him. I think it was. But I even respect him for that in a way. And maybe he just got carried away with the Hitman. I mean, it was virtual. Maybe it was like playing Dungeons and Dragons or something. But there's an outlaw. There's a real outlaw. They're the, computer outlaws. Mm-hmm. Do you think you might be following, uh, making your way into the world of the internet or computers? No, I'm, no. I mean, I'm I mean, on my computer all day long, but I'm hardly, you know, savvy. I mean, you just get a young person to come fix it. Um, no, I think, though, the hackers, what they should do is go in for all the politicians that they're against and hack and reveal what porno they rented. Mm, well. <laughs> that would be... Like what the yippies used to do. Uh -huh. It's terrorism with humor. To to embarrass your enemy with humor. I'm for that. Well, wait till you find out that Jeb Bush owns a DVD of Pink Flamingos. <laughs> or adult <laughs> babies or something. You know, I hope that you know he stops making mistakes because I want him to be the candidate so we can win. You want him to win? No. Oh. I want him to be the Republican candidate so I think Hillary will win yeah, if he is. Okay, good, good. I'm yeah, no. <laughs> My Although I have friends with Republicans, I, I can I have Republican friends, and I think you have to be able to listen to everybody to to ever get through life. I'm against separatism, even all Democrats only hanging around with Democrats. Well, I I, I certainly agree. On the other hand, I don't want them running the country. No, but when they have, <laughs> it's been more fun to rebel. <laughs> I've been speaking with John Waters. He's a professional rebel for the last 50 years or so. Thank you for joining me, John. Thank you so much for having me. And listeners, hitchhike home today.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.